Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh did you want to? Sorry. sorry. I'll let you. I'll let you. Next time. I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I'll have what she's having. Too many guys think of a concept or I complete them or I'm going to make them alive. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Caustic wit is my religion. I would make a great queen because I am so stubborn. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 113 of Citizen Dame, the podcast where we sit in our houses alone and <laughs> not sad because we don't have to deal with sexist bullshit outside in the real world. Uh, just in our houses on Twitter. I am Karen Peterson, joined as always by Lauren Humphreys Brooks. Hello. <laughs> Lauren, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. You know, actually, I was having a conversation with a male friend the other day. It's just like, man, you know, I'm just going to flirt with like every girl uh, <laughs> that I see when like I go out again. Oh, and I was God. like, you do know that women have are going to go out and be like, oh, fuck, I've got to deal with street harassment again. You know, uh-huh. it's something that we don't have to deal with right now. We're just like, man, it's been great. No men. Uh-huh. You know, it's funny because I've been taking walks around my neighborhood. And there's like this this loop that I've been doing, which is about a mile and a half. And it's just really nice. I'll do it like twice a day or something. And um, right near where I live, there's this distillery and there's a bunch of workers in there. And every once in a while when I go out, yeah, there's guys out there and they'll, they're not super like bad, but they'll make comments sometimes and it's really uncomfortable. And since this whole thing has started and I'm going out there even more, like they never say a word to me. They just like, (laughs) let me go. I was like, you know what? It's a tough time for all of us right now. We're going to give the girls a break for a while. (laughs) Exactly. It's so nice. Yep. Oh, man. So, what have you been up to this week? What have I been up to this week? I've watched stuff. Hey, me too. (laughs) Watched stuff. Uh, We were were trying to raise a sourdough starter. That's been exciting. It's very like we've been caring. We've been caring for him. You know, he's 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 a little fighter. He's doing seems to be doing all right. <laughs> I keep seeing the sourdough starters and all the different types of bread, and I'm like, oh, so this is why I can't find any flour. All right, well, I hope it's working out for you guys. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> no, it is why you can't find any flour. I was actually like, oh my god, wait a minute. We only have one bag of flour after we after we finish this bag of flour. So we've got to get more flour. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a more dire situation for you, your flour supply or your toilet paper supply? Actually, our toilet paper supply has become much steadier. Like our grocery store has managed to to like always have at least some in stock. So I'm less worried about that now. The flour supply I'm worried about because we've got to feed the starter <laughs> first of all, and then there are other things <laughs> that we need flour for. And it's just like we've got to be careful because mm-hmm. you can't run out of flour. <laughs> <laughs> It's so funny because I actually, I don't really have a real kitchen. I have like a kitchenette, so I don't have an actual oven. And so I'm like, I have a bag of flour that I've had here since before the shutdown, before anybody started like going crazy on stuff. And I'm sitting there like, I feel kind of, it's only like a three pound bag, but I'm like, I feel kind of bad because I know other people could use this more than me. (laughs) It's just sitting here. I should probably do something with it. Make pancakes. There are a lot of things you can do. Just oh yeah, yeah. I'll figure something out. Actually, I might make cookies. I have like a toaster oven. I can make cookies in that. So there you go. Ooh, that's a project today. I bought chocolate chips. I don't know why. I just randomly did. So now I know what to do with them. There we go. See. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, <laughs> we'll get to what we were watching in a minute. Well, Let's just talk about it now. We've talked, we've watched a lot of things, both of us, in the last week or so. Um, what's something that you watched this week, Lauren? I have watched many things. Uh, one of the things, I mean, I mean, I'm still working through a lot of the stuff that's on Criterion. Um, my roommate and I settled down and watched the excellent Herschel Gordon Lewis um, 
uh, exploitation film Color Me Blood Red, which was just so fabulous. <laughs> I don't know that if you've seen like any... a happy movie. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen any Herschel Gordon Lewis films, but they would be they're the kind of films that would be offensive if they were better made but they're so <laughs> badly made, like to the degree, like we were praising, as we were watching this film, we were praising it because we were like, man, he's actually managed to get everybody in frame on like, cause there are some of his films where like he will, the camera, the camera is like static or something like that. And so there are people that are too tall or he'll position it like on a rise or something like that. So you can't actually see people's heads you just see their bodies <laughs> and this one it was just like ah it's it moves they're in frame you know there's like some music uh but it's it's um yeah it's a spectacular film actually the idea is, is a really good one it's about a painter who can't get the right color for his his artwork and then his girlfriend uh cuts her finger and he he realizes that the color that he needs is blood and so he begins killing people to get their blood and to use it in his artwork. As you would do. I mean, that seems like a logical answer. <laughs> it's it's very good. It's very good. It's um you know, Herschel Gordon Lewis was actually he was a low he was, you know, one of the most the lowest of low budget filmmakers. Uh and he was also a porn director in like the nineteen sixties, and you can tell. <laughs> I'm shocked. I'm honestly, I'm just shocked. <laughs> Although honestly, I want to know. I was just like, okay, but in the porns, were they in frame? Because I feel like that that kind of would defeat the purpose of a porn if you know you can't actually see what's happening. Just like I see a foot. It's like off to the side there, but mostly we're looking at a blank wall. You know, I don't know. <laughs> you just imagine what's going on there. It's it's <laughs> pornography of the mind. Exactly. It's very artistic <laughs> pornography. Um, so we watched that and then also like, uh, last night I finished watching, um, The Harder They Fall, which is a a boxing movie starring Humphrey Bogart and, uh, Rod Steiger. It was, I think it's Bogart's last film. Uh, and he's, he's great in it, but it's about, um, he plays kind of a a promoter, a, a PR press agent, uh, who works with this kind of boxing syndicate run by Rod Steiger. And he is, um, that the boxer is can't box basically like he's he's they're they're just essentially paying people to take falls to kind of build this guy up and make him into this this you know contender but he's not really a contender and then it gets to the point where he's actually challenging the heavyweight champion and it's like this is a bad idea someone's gonna die you know uh but it's a really really interesting film that's part of the Colombian noir collection yeah, so I'm working my way through the Colombian noir. I don't know if I have enough time to finish them all just because there's so many. But the good thing is that a lot of them are under an hour and a half. So yeah. it's like you can watch two or three of them in the same amount of time that you're binge watching a show and get ready to take a break. You can watch like three <laughs> three movies. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so I actually caught a couple more this week too. Um You've talked about this one a few times, but I finally watched Experiment in Terror. Yeah. And wow. Wow. Um, it. Oh, man. Like, we talked a little bit about this um, just on Slack, but um, the opening scene where he grabs her, the girl um, and is basically telling her, you know, you're going to rob this bank for me and. Um, just that, the way that that scene plays out where he's completely in shadow and you can't see his face and you just hear his voice in her ear and his, his labored breathing cause he's asthmatic and it's so, so terrifying cause it's like, I'm watching this and I can feel his breath on my neck and I just feel the fear of being completely trapped and, and hearing yourself and your, your family being threatened and oh man, it's so visceral. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, really, really well done. If anybody has not seen that one, I highly recommend you follow <laughs> Lauren's recommendation and watch it. Because <laughs> it's, yeah, that was a good one. Um, yeah, I, I, I love that film. I love it. It's, it's like, I mean, we said, we said earlier that it's, it's almost like a, a horror film. At least the beginning mm-hmm. of it is. That it's, it's yeah. 
kind of straddles the line between noir and horror because it's so visceral. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it was terrifying. Um, and and just the the score throughout yeah. the whole film, the scores by Henry Mancini, and it's 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 so perfect, and it really makes you feel what she's feeling. And um, I really liked the cinematography in this more than in other black and white films. I feel like it was they really really knew how to use Blake Edwards really knew how to use those shadows to great mm-hmm. effect. And so it was fantastic, yeah. Um, and then last night, what did I watch last night? I told you what I was watching, and I totally uh, forgot. Crimson Kimono? Oh, yes, the Crimson Kimono. I felt not as excited about that one, I'm going to be <laughs> honest. <laughs> I thought that it was interesting that a film from 1959 was taking on some of, like, LA's racism issues, especially as it pertained to the way Asians were treated in the 50s, but mm-hmm. I... Uh, <laughs> the movie itself, I was like, I don't understand. Am I supposed to like Glenn Corbett in this movie? Because I really want to punch him in the balls. And uh, I mean, I don't think... I don't necessarily think that you're supposed to like him. I think that you're, okay. su- you're supposed to kind of uh be interested in him but i think that the main focus really is on the the two other characters that the film kind of begins with him but then shifts over to them and that it's more about it's also about the kind of exposing the 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 undercurrent of his of his racism that Mm -hmm. he's you know he's like well this guy's my best friend and we're partners and all that and then suddenly because he's getting he's japanese man getting involved with a white woman um there's this shift that happens and that it's as much about that shift for him and what that means for their relationship and what that means in in a more total way about uh, uh, race relations in the United States in that period. Um, And and how people react to, you know, just like, well, I'm totally not racist. I'm just not okay with this. And I, I think that that's what's really interesting about it. And also, I'm not racist because I have an Asian friend. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that whole concept. But I don't know. I guess I was expecting it to be more about the mystery. I didn't realize that it was mostly this kind of like love triangle story and Mm -hmm. the mystery was kind of secondary to it. And so I think because I wasn't expecting that, it was a little bit like, oh, well, I want to know who killed that other girl. Like, (laughs) Let's go back to that story. I don't care about this like love plot thing. Like, (laughs) this isn't that interesting to me. I don't want her to pick either of them. (laughs) Go be your own woman. (laughs) I don't know. But, um... It's okay to be wrong, Karen. Sorry. <laughs> well, I didn't think it was a bad movie. It just wasn't the movie that I thought it was going to be. And mm-hmm. so at some point I'll revisit it now that I actually know what it is. And I'm sure it'll be better um, the next time. But yeah. And then the other big thing that I started this week was Killing Eve. Yeah. I'm obsessed with Killing Eve. <laughs> I mean, obviously, everyone's been talking about this show for a couple of years now. Sandra Oh was the first, I think, the first Asian woman to uh, be nominated for lead actress for the Emmys ever, I think. Um, that sounds right. Yeah. yeah uh, and so it's like I've known about this show for a while, but it's one of those where it's like I didn't start watching it when it first came out. And so it's been kind of one of those like I need to find time to catch up with it. And another show where it wasn't entirely about what I thought it was about, I actually didn't really know what it was, what it was. And I'm glad I didn't because it's, it's so much better than anything I probably would have thought of in my head. And it's, um, Sandra Oh plays this woman that I think is supposed to be Canadian, which Sandra Oh is Canadian, but she's living in Britain working for MI5. And she's tracking this assassin, which is played by Jodie Comer. And the the both of them develop this obsession with each other where they just need to know everything about each other. There's this attraction. Um, and it's really interesting to watch that dynamic. I mean, we've seen that in some films 
where, like, one of the characters is a man, but we've never seen that where they're both women. And it's, it's really fascinating. And then just like some of the, some of the, um, assassination scenes and some of the action, it's really, really good. The production value on the show is great. The performances are amazing and it's just a lot of fun. So yeah, highly recommend that. You can catch up with the first two seasons on Hulu and then season three is currently airing. I think it premiered two weeks ago. So I think it's, I think this weekend is episode three. So. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I mean, I still haven't seen it, although I keep on hearing great things about it and you're recommending it. I'm going to have to just settle down and, and start watching it and I'll probably be totally into it and just watch all of it within a week. <laughs> The, yeah, the nice thing is it's uh, each season is eight episodes, and it's for broadcast TV, so they're only about 40 minutes. That's so it's like, yeah, so you can watch the whole first season in less than four hours, I think. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. So. And I, I mean, I think we both, you've, watched, you've seen more of it than I have, but we both watched What We Do in the Shadows. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> which was... Which is just great. Like, I was so happy to... I watched the, the first two episodes are on Hulu now, and I was like, <laughs> I'm so glad to have these guys back. Uh, I like... They haven't... They don't seem to have lost any momentum. Like, it's still very funny. The characters are still, you know, pretty, pretty much in keeping <laughs> with everything. Um, I'm very interested to find out what happens with Guillermo, uh, given everything. <laughs> Oh uh, man, I know some things and I can't wait. The next episode's <laughs> gonna be really good. <laughs> I I mean I loved I love it in the ghost episode, so the it's the second one that is currently up. Um uh but they're all they're all like, no, ghosts are ridiculous. No one believes in ghosts, that's a superstition. <laughs> and Gilmore's like, I'm I mean, I'm talking with a vampire. I have met zombies and werewolves, but ghosts are too much. <laughs> Yeah, ghosts are where we draw the line. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then also also that little thing, just like, wait a minute, if we're, we're not really alive, so if we're undead, do we have ghosts? (laughs) It was a, that was a vampire debate I had never really thought about. It's just like, yeah, that's true. Would vampires Uh have ghosts? (laughs) If they had unfinished business, they might. If they had, and yeah, we we learn whether or not vampires have ghosts. But it's um yeah. Again, anyone who has not been watching what we do in the shadows, you first of all, you're wrong. Like I don't know why you're not watching it because there's no reason not to. Uh, yeah, it's it's wonderful and funny and very much in keeping with the original film, but also different. Like it's it's going off on its own thing, and and uh, and I love that about it. Yeah, like, I love the original film, obviously, Um, and it's really great, it's really smart and well done, but I actually like the show better. I think the show is consistently funnier. Um, I really just, I love the way that we've gotten to see the characters develop more. Um, I mean, even just in this first episode, and you'll see it more over the next couple weeks, too, but um, even just seeing Colin Robinson get to be more of an active part in the house, too. And, and Guillermo, oh, man. <laughs> His journey this season is so good. Oh, God. I, well, I do. I have actually, I always like Colin Robinson. But I also, again, in the ghost episode where, where he's like, what about you? Are you, like, undead? And it's like, you know what? I don't even know what my deal is. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not sure, <laughs> and I really like that. I'm just like, yeah. What is Colin Robinson's deal? Like, is he a, is he undead like the rest of them? Is or what is? Yeah, it's it's a good show. Yep. Yeah, it's so brilliant. So yeah, definitely watch that. FX on Hulu the next day. So Wednesday nights it's on FX. Thursday mornings it's on Hulu. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a lovely show. Yep. Oh, man. Natasha, or sorry, that's her real name. Nadia is me. (laughs) If I had to live in a house with a bunch of dudes all the time, I would... Oh, man, she cracks me up so much because she says things that I would definitely be thinking all the time. (laughs) Oh, good stuff. Well, um, something 
Uh, oh, well, let's talk about... Yeah, okay. So this week we got some first images of Dune, the big movie by Denis Villeneuve, which is now coming out in December and stars Timothy Chalamet and Rebecca Ferguson and Stellan Skarsgård and some other dude that was in like a Coen Brothers movie. I can't think of his name. He might have been in a Star <laughs> Wars movie too. And... Um, <laughs> Anyway, and also basically all of Hollywood is in Dune. And we finally got some pictures, which basically broke the internet because a whole lot of people are <laughs> stuck in their houses with nothing else to do. And this made them very happy, apparently. Um, but, Lauren, you have some thoughts on Dune and particularly the Vanity Fair article that came out. Yeah, I, I have I have some thoughts. And this was actually pointed out to me by N- Nanina, who has been on the show a couple of times. She uh, She's a patron. She, she's a good friend of mine from, from college. We've known each other a long time. We love Nanina. And, and she texted me earlier and was like, so are you guys going to talk about this? And I was like, oh, I hadn't, because like, I'd sort of glanced through the Vanity Fair article. I'd looked at the pictures. I'd been like, oh, yeah, sure, whatever. I don't like Villeneuve, um, but I love Dune. And so I have this kind of back and forth of, like, I want to see it, but also I do not trust him for anything. Um, but then she was like, well, hey, did you read this part? And she sent me the quotes, and I was like, oh, oh, now I'm mad. Oh, now I'm mad. <laughs> so to give people a little bit of background, Dune is very complicated, Right, just the the original book is incredibly complicated. There's a lot of there's just a lot of world building, a lot of um, a lot of very odd kind of recognizable concepts about religion and about philosophy and all of this stuff. Uh, but that it also does its own thing. So it's difficult. It's going to be very difficult, and I don't think that any film is really going to accomplish it to put all of that. Um, into into the narrative there's just a lot that the book does uh that is difficult to distill and there are huge sections of it that are just people talking to each other which is not what we tend to expect from sci-fi but so the basic plot of dune is uh, about this young this young man young boy paul <clears throat> who is the son of uh of a duke and basically his family are sent to take control over the planet of Dune, which is uh, which is a desert planet, and it used and they think that it used to be this very lush place, but now it's become this desert. And the reason why Dune is so important is because it produces something called spice, which is a, it's essentially like a mind altering drug, but it also makes people. Uh, Make, makes people become more aware of the world around them, and it is especially used. It's used in trade, and it's also used in in spaceship navigation. So that's the basic concept, right? And what we learn about Paul uh, fairly quickly is that Paul is, and I'm going to try to make sure I get this statement correct, because <laughs> there are all of these words. Um, mm-hmm. So Paul is the. Yes, Paul is the Kwisatz Haderach, a sort of messiah figure, essentially. So he has clairvoyance and he has all of these abilities that he doesn't really know that he has, but that are beginning to come into evidence. And he's also for the freemen who are, who are Dune's uh, indigenous people, right? Uh, they begin to think that he uh, is their essentially their messiah. And so that's the main structure of the plot is it's about Paul discovering this about himself and about um, him making choices about whether or not to fight for the freemen. They're also facing the sort of rival family who's the rival of Paul's family, the Harkonnens. And so there's this whole battle going on. One of the major characters in Dune is Paul's mother, Jessica, and she is uh, Duke Leto's, who is his father. She is Leto's quotation marks concubine but the way that concubine is used in um, the dune mythos is very different from the way that we understand concubine concubine tends to be like oh you know not really this important figure she's incredibly important um and her and leto have had a an extended relationship have had a long relationship they have uh they have one child together she thinks she might be pregnant with another um and she is a member of this essentially religious sect that have been searching for 
the um, Kwisatz Haderach, so this, this, this messiah figure, essentially, and that they think that it's Paul. Um, the problem is that males are not supposed to be the messiah. They're too dangerous. So they're angry with her that this, that this boy might actually turn out to be this, this thing that they've been searching for. But Jessica is an incredibly complex character. She essentially supports and protects Paul throughout most of the book. She is, yes, she is the concubine of Duke Leto, but she is basically the power within the family. She has, uh, she has numerous point of view sections in Dune. Like the book follows her for about the first half, far more than it actually follows Paul, because Paul is just this sort of snotty teenager to start out with. He's not, he doesn't particularly understand what's happening to him. And her importance in not just in giving birth to him and in protecting him, but in the way that the plot develops, in the movement of the plot and in the, the uh, discovery of all of this information about Paul and about the Freeman and about the planet, is it cannot be overstated, right? She is, and this is in the book, this is exceptionally, exceptionally important. So... Jump to our best friend, Villeneuve, and uh, also particularly to some of the things that Rebecca Ferguson, who's playing Jessica, uh, has said. One of the things, one of the things that she said uh, is, or one of the things that, that they're claiming is that the, this is directed from the Vanity Fair article, the director has expanded the role of Paul's mother, Lady Jessica. Okay, I don't know how you, you do that, because she already has, she is a, a co-protagonist for a large section of the book. Um, <laughs> so they also compare it to having like the ability of a Jedi mind trick. Does this book was written expanded in from the 1984 film because no, they, that film. I don't know. They I don't, well, yeah, but they seem to they seem to be talking directly about the book. That's the thing yeah. that they've expanded. They've expanded her role from the book, right? Um, that's, yeah, that's, that is what he makes it sound like. I don't know. Maybe the French Canadian translation was just different. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, and the, and some of this is also what the uh, the author of the article is kind of talking about, and it's quite yeah. obvious that either he has not read the book or uh, he just paid attention to the whole white messiah element and nothing else that is happening in that this would be a like shocker if that in, happened. In a book that's all that's about a thousand pages, uh, so they're they're saying Lady Jessica's duty is to deliver is to deliver a savior to the universe. That is not even remotely true about what happens in the book. That is not the that's not right. That is incorrect. Um, and now she has a greater role in defending and training Paul too. No, she literally does that in the book. Uh, and then Rebecca Ferguson is saying things like, Denis was very respectful of Frank's work in the book, but the quality of the arcs for much of the women have been brought up to a new level. There were some shifts he did, and they're beautifully portrayed now. It's like, okay. Earlier, in uh, several quotes that uh, she gave to uh, um, uh, IndieWire, in back, this was back in October, uh, she said something that Denis Villeneuve and the writers have really taken into consideration is that this book was written back in the day when women were portrayed differently to what we were expecting nowadays, which we call gender equality. It's something they have taken into consideration making this script. Even though Lady Jessica's concubine to the king, she's not concubine to the king, she's concubine to a duke. Uh, she's also his bodyguard, his mentor, she can read thought and emotion, she's the best fighter there is. Uh, so there's a subtle power that she needs to teach her son. It's a complex story. Um, it's hard to discuss in one sentence. Yes, absolutely. It is. It is a very complex story, as I have just proven by trying to summarize it. Uh, but again, all of the things that she's talking about that Villeneuve has, quotation marks, added to the character of Jessica and expanding her character are in the fucking book. So I don't know if Rebecca Ferguson has just not read the book and is only like taking like information from synopses or what. But one of the things that really bothers me is this statement about like, well, back in the back in the day, you know, we didn't expect women to be powerful. It's like, no, that's one of the reasons why Dune is such a groundbreaking narrative, because it's it was written in 1965, which is, you know, not before the women's movement got going. This is something that was actually happening at the same time. Um, 
And and that somehow, you know, well, that was then and isn't acute, but now we have what's called a gender equality. It's like, great. And our three male screenwriters have done a great job at that. Uh, so, yeah, I, I just found this to be such total fucking bullshit. And what's more, given the way that Villeneuve has treated women in pretty much every single one of his movies, yes, I include a rival in that. I am I will fight anyone to the death on that fucking film. It is reductive. And, Thank you. And it is nasty. And it made me so fucking angry when I saw it. Um Villeneuve does not understand shit about women. He does not understand shit about feminism. And I really, based upon everything that I'm seeing, everything that they're talking about, I do not trust for a single moment that he is going to treat Jessica as anything other than a Mother Mary stand-in. That's what we're going to get as a result of Dune. And it's really disappointing, and I'm sad for Rebecca Ferguson because she's probably going to give a great performance. But that is what we are going to see. So, but let's not bullshit. Let's not say like, oh, Dune, this, you know, Dune is about the savior of the universe. No, it's not about that at all. It's actually about, it's about cultural supremacy. It is about uh, colonization. It is about the hollowness of the white savior myth. uh, And it is about the dangers of messianic culture. And that's what the novel is dealing with. And it is also dealing with really strong concepts of feminism and the importance of femininity. Uh, that you know actually gets defeated and destroyed in a lot of ways by the by male dominance. So let's not bullshit and say that this is like oh we're gonna make Dune feminist. Dune was already feminist. Yeah, I'm guessing Villeneuve uh, <laughs> didn't get that. Um, we'll have to talk about Arrival one of these days because I did not. We I don't think we've ever discussed that, and I didn't realize that you and I are on the same side on that one. And I have felt very lonely on that correct island. So um, <laughs> we'll have to talk about that at some point. But um, but there's another uh, quote just going along with uh, what you've been talking about, where I thought it was interesting. And of course, granted, I have not. I read about a third of the book and I, the writing style was making me crazy. So I had to stop. And it's one of those books that I've always been like, I'm going to go back and finish that someday. And I just never have. But, uh, but there's a part where they're talking about, it's actually right after the Jessica stuff. They're talking about Dr. Kynes. Um, I don't, I don't know if I'm saying mm-hmm. any of these names right, but um, neither do I, honestly. So <laughs> always depicted as a white man, always. Well, there's been like two versions of this movie, but okay. Um, <laughs> so the character is now played by Sharon Duncan Brewster, a black woman. And then there's a quote from her that says, "What Denis had stated to me was there was a lack of female characters in his cast." And he had always been very feminist, pro-women, and wanted to write the role for a woman. This human being manages to basically keep the peace amongst most people. Women are very good at that, so why can't Kynes be a woman? Why shouldn't Kynes be a woman? I feel like that quote is really interesting where it says, um, there was a lack of female characters in his cast. And I was like, yeah, Mm -hmm. that's a very conscious choice because what I do remember from what I read of the book is that there were a lot of women in it. Yeah. A lot. Like, way more women than men. So if his cast is mostly male, that's (laughs) a very conscious choice on his part to ignore a lot of the female characters. And I'm not taking a stance on whether gender swapping this character is right or wrong, I think, great, you know? It sounds like it doesn't have to be a white man, and good, that's fine. And great for Sharon Duncan Brewster. I hope she's awesome. I'm sure she is. But it's just the statement of the male cast was really, it really stood out to me. It was like, wait a mm-hmm. second. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's interesting, because I think one of, one of the things that Dune does explore is that it is anthropological and sociological in the sense that it is dealing with a a colonizing force right in the in the person Mm -hmm. of this this family right coming to a planet that is inhabited by an underclass of indigenous peoples right right and that the problem that they're dealing with and that the the indigenous people are dealing with is that they have adapted to living in this extreme desert environment um, and that they are looking for this this messianic 
figure. But at the same time, there's a tension that is going on in order for them to be able to take back control of their homeland, right? Um, and that there's a tension that develops between between this boy who is, you know, I'm not certain whether they ever explicitly say that he's white, uh, but you know, that's that's kind of the way that it, that the the story is developed. That it is about colonization, uh, and is about the responsibility of colonization and how it warps people, and how even those people that are trying to do good and trying to sort of contribute something are are actually damaging. The, the land are damaging the climate and are, are damaging the people that already live there. Right. And so there's all of this tension that is going on. There's tensions about slavery. There's tensions about what is, what is basically slavery. Uh, there's tensions about Paul's relationships with the freemen who are, you know, kind of typed as, as uh, sort of Arabic or nomadic culture, but there's a lot of differences and there's a lot of complexity to it. And so to simply be like, Oh, we're going to, if I remember correctly, Kind is 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 basically an anthropologist who's been mm-hmm. studying ecologist, yeah, who's been studying the culture and the um and the land. So he's in the book. He's part of the colonization effort. So to transpose that onto a black woman, mm-hmm. I'm not certain about that. It <laughs> <laughs> does seem like a choice. I am not certain about that. And, and and here's the thing, I really don't I don't think that Villeneuve and I, I doubt any of his any of his exclusively male writers have any sort of awareness of this. I don't think that they this is one of the problems that that always arises with Dune is that Dune is more complicated than what straight white men want to make it as. They want to make it into this this the one narrative a messianic narrative that is about that is about the essentially the white man coming down and saving the chosen people right that's that's what it's doing it's and that's exactly what the book is trying to say is damaging and is violent and is ultimately destructive and that is not it doesn't come through in any of the other adaptations that i've seen and i i seriously doubt that it's going to come through in this one yeah, I mean, just the things that you've talked about, it, it's it's one of those things, I mean, we really do take in, soak in, and interpret literature and film and all of it through our own perspectives, mm-hmm. and when you're telling a story entirely from one perspective, which is what's happening when you've got a white male director and white male writers you are going to miss like no matter what you just you can't help but miss some of the nuances and some of the the really important points that are going on in the subtext it's it's not possible not to miss that and so Mm -hmm. it's it's one of those things like this is why you've got to diversify on screen but also behind the scenes too i mean imagine if one of the writers of this had been a black woman imagine how much more depth and and development you might have gotten from some of these characters and a different level of understanding mm-hmm. so yeah yeah exactly but you know i mean we've we've seen vienov's other films mm-hmm. yep yep not impressed <laughs> so <laughs> anyway so that that's my dune rant sorry <laughs> it probably won't be the last and that's okay uh, well, we did get a couple of questions. One of them is actually about Dune. This is from at Noah underscore Saturn. Can we give Oscar Isaac an Oscar for that picture of him from Dune? Fuck no. No. <laughs> Nuh-uh. <laughs> I know, you know what, I'm sorry. Oscar Isaac is a very attractive man. But And again, you know, we, we ripped on Glenn Ford last week. I'm going to rip on, our, on Oscar Isaac this, <laughs> this week because you're not here, Kristen. <laughs> You can't stop me. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think he's going to be a good Duke Leto. I actually think that he's great casting for that part. But I'm not a fan of the beard. Um, and I, I'm not, I just, like, he, he does very little for me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't know if that means that I that you have to take away my straight lady card or something. I don't know. Like... <laughs> I don't know. My given my feelings about men and the development of my feelings about Rita Hayworth, I don't know where we're at right now. But, <laughs> but 
But, uh, yeah, Oscar Isaac... It's a confusing time for me, too. It's it's very confusing. Uh, But Oscar Isaac just does not do it for me. You know, I actually, I do find him very attractive, and I actually like Oscar Isaac with the beard. I just... I I don't know. I'm just... I'm not excited for this movie, and I don't want it to get any awards. (laughs) Well... It's not against Oscar Isaac. (laughs) Uh. I don't know. Anyway, um, if we're going to give out awards, I want to give it to Ewan McGregor for Birds of Prey. Yeah, exactly. That, that's going to be the breakdown of this year's Oscars. It's going to be like Dune, Birds of Prey, <laughs> Invisible Man, and like Sonic the Hedgehog. Top Gun Maverick. Top Gun Maverick, yeah. <laughs> yep. Because um, those are the only movies that are being that are going to be released. The only big movies that are going to be released this year. Yeah, so. exactly, exactly. No, we've actually been talking about that. And are they going to essentially cancel this year's Oscars and then do a combined year like they did for the very first Oscars and just do like a twenty twenty one awards mm. instead of? Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, I mean, that they in itself... should be announcing. Go on. What's that? I was gonna say that well, that in itself that in itself could be a clusterfuck because oh yeah if you look at all of the you know all of the films that are gonna come out in at the end of mm-hmm. 2020 and into 2021 like that that could that could be a real adventure yeah suddenly you have 500 600 movies eligible for best picture that seems like a nightmare in 1927 they had like 14 <laughs> so. <laughs> Okay, it was like 40, but still, like a much different story. Um, so mm-hmm. but it's just one of those things. But I honestly, I think that they're just going to change the eligibility requirement and lift that for this year. Because, and I think that the Academy probably had already discussed that with some of the studios, which is why some of them have decided to go ahead and release things on streaming instead of in theaters. I think they've gotten some assurances from the Academy that mm-hmm. it'll... They'll, they'll ease that requirement this year. But anyway, but it's just a conversation that's out there. So, um, yeah. Anyway, uh, we did have another question. This is from at Unstoppable Rant. Have you seen the 1954 film Salt of the Earth made entirely by black with blacklisted Hollywood communists? No, I have not. I'm guessing you have. Not, no, I haven't. Um, and actually, oh. it's been on my list for uh, for many ages, but I have not seen it. Yeah, there's a lot of movies that I've just never seen. So, <laughs> unfortunately, that's one of them I cannot comment. But thank you for asking, because now this is going to bump up on my list so that at some point we can talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, my list of movies to watch is very, 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 very long. So, um, But <laughs> instead of watching something, I a movie last night, I watched Cursed Films on Shudder. For, I don't know, however long it was. I watched all five episodes, just boom, in one shot. And wow. we want to talk about that today. Yeah. How, how far did you get? Uh, I got to episode two. <laughs> so. Okay. <laughs> so, sorry about that. Yeah, I did not. No, I did not okay. I did not get I just all the way kept through. going. <laughs> Jesus, that's a lot. That's I like, know. that's longer than I a know. feature film. This is what you do when you live alone and don't have a sourdough starter. <laughs> You gotta have your little baby sourdough starter. Yep, exactly. He's doing so well. I, do not. <laughs> I just have a bunny who's over there. Like, would you stop talking? <laughs> disturbing my sleep. Um. Anyway, uh, so for those who don't know, Cursed Films is a documentary series that hit Shutter this week, and we got five episodes. Apparently, this is something that they're gonna keep revisiting, so there will be more episodes. Um. Each episode breaks down a different film that is supposed to be cursed and talks about some of the the elements around it, why people think that it's a cursed film. They interview um, people that, you know, they interview writers, but they also interview folks that worked on the film and um, talk about some of those, the different stories that happened. And I thought there were some really interesting insights. So the very first episode is about The Exorcist, which... Um, that's a movie that I have also never seen, but very deliberately. In fact, last night after I was done watching Cursed Films, I was like, 
The Exorcist is on Shudder now, too. Mm -hmm. And I was like, "Uh, maybe I should just go ahead and watch it. But it's one that I've deliberately chosen never to (laughs) watch. And so I didn't end up watching it. But but it's funny because the biggest reason I've never watched it is because of the supposed (laughs) curse on it. And I'm like, it's just extra creepy. I don't want to see that. But Lauren, what did you think overall of the sh- of the two episodes that you watched, and then we'll talk about some of the specific ideas that we that were talked about. I mean, I I thought I thought that there I think that it's an interesting idea, and it's interesting to look at these films kind of as, as sort of the light in in the light of you know the curse of horror films. And I was glad that they talked more about less about the content of the film and um and more about kind of what's going on in the background. So, so like the way that with the exorcist, the way that the PR was done, uh, this, which they don't mention it actually in the episode, but one of the things that they said is like, Oh yeah. Like, like building up this whole kind of this, this, uh, mythology behind it. Right. Um, and Oh, you know, there's, there was this, uh, you know, people are dying in the theaters, like having heart attacks. You know, we have ambulances parked outside the theaters, which was all a PR <laughs> stunt, but it was also something, and this this is not something they really mentioned in the documentary. Um, it was also something that has been done as at least as early as the nineteen thirty one Dracula, um, mm-hmm. where you like literally have have campaigns where just like we're stationing nurses in all of the theaters in case you are so frightened that you know, and and so there are all of these kind of apocryphal stories that are. Uh, you know, about people having heart attacks or people passing out during these films, which is just really a PR stunt in order to kind of raise the the interest in them and get people into the theater. So you're just like, ooh, it's so scary that you have a heart attack. I've got to go see it. Um, and so I found that really interesting. I also, one of the things that I really wanted them to address, and maybe they didn't, they couldn't for PR reasons of their own, but as I was watching it, I was like, so the curse is not so much a curse as it is someone named William Friedkin and the problem <laughs> the the unfortunate occurrences are not so much unfortunate occurrences as it is abusing actors because that was the takeaway of a lot of what they were talking about like Linda Blair getting fracturing her lower back um yeah uh, uh what's her name Ellen Ellen Burstyn being flung across the room and hurting herself and that winding up in the film you know all of that shit it's just like wait a minute this just sounds like a director who is totally unconcerned for the safety of his actors including a child right mm-hmm. and and was hurting them and causing mayhem on the set and causing problems on the set in order to get the shot. And that's basically what it came down to. And I was a little troubled that no one commenting on the film mentioned that. They were just like, oh, isn't it odd that all these people got hurt? No, it's not. The director obviously didn't care about the safety of his actors, that that's what was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that that bothered me a little bit. So there, there's a little bit of... I, I, feel, I felt like... The, at least a couple of episodes that I watched while I was interested in them, I felt like there was there's too much superficiality to what they were talking about, and they weren't saying certain things. And I complained on Twitter about a certain male critic of note, whose name I will not say, <laughs> uh, but who is featured on on this series, and he said he said something about um, that he found it very odd. That, you know, Linda Blair kind of got death threats and had to have bodyguards and stuff like that. Uh, where, whereas because she was, you know, this this demon incarnate or something. and But it, but the kid from The Omen didn't have that. And it was mm-hmm. just like, oh, I just found that very curious. Just like, no, you know what this is. You fucking know what this is. Say it. This is sexism. This is vilifying a little girl. Right? And it... That's what is happening right here. And he even goes so far as to say, I mean, she was kind of a victim. It's just like, yeah, she's literally the fucking victim of the film. Linda Blair as an actress and the character of Regan. She's not, Regan is not a demon. She is possessed by a demon. She is the most victimized character in that whole fucking film. Are you that stupid? 
right? And it, it did kind of highlight for, for me. I was just like, you know, they did have female critics and, and I was glad to see that. But at the same time, I'm like, you know what? Why are they letting these Gen X males talk about this shit when they obviously won't say the thing that they have to know? They have to know that this is about sexism. They have to. They cannot be this dumb. Ugh. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I think that you're exactly right. It's not that they didn't know. I think that they thought they were being coy by not just saying it outright. Um, but instead it just made them look like they're being obtuse. But um, yeah, no, <laughs> they know. They knew exactly what it was about. Uh, the What I thought was really interesting about this series overall, um, you kind of talked about this, but I, I liked the fact that pretty much every one of the episodes and I don't want to give stuff away but um pretty much every one of the episodes does break down that like it's not about curses it's really about this mythology that builds around yeah. certain movies for whatever reason and so I liked that because I've seen shows before that really play up like oh Heather O'Rourke died before they finished Poltergeist 3 and and they had been the spirits had been after her for all those years like no she was very sick and had inadequate medical care <laughs> that's what happened to her it was not a curse you know and it's interesting in the episode where they talk about poltergeist um one of the people that worked on it i'm trying to remember who it was one of the people who worked on the movie he was just like yeah it's very offensive to say that she died because of a curse to say that Dominique Dunn was murdered because of a curse. Mm -hmm. That's not what happened at all. And it's really offensive to their memories. And I was glad that he said that yeah. because it's, it's so true. And I think that's what I overall really enjoyed about this series was that it didn't build into and play up the mythology. It really broke it down and said, okay, this is what was really going on. And, um, I agree. It could have been, some things could have been much more overtly stated, but I also feel like, they said what they needed to and, and didn't really feel like they needed to spell it out. Like, they, yeah. they drew you to where you needed to make the conclusions you needed to make. And so I thought overall it was, was pretty well done in that regard. Yeah, no, I think that it's a well done series. And I think the Exorcist episode just kind of set me off because of certain things that, mm -hmm. that I wanted them... I mean, like you're saying, I think that they're being coy about it. But I wanted them to actually say, you know, this this was... You know, this is real. This is yeah. because Linda Blair was being abused. That's what happened. Yeah. She and, mm -hmm. the, you know, it's that that's what was going on. That with. deserved to be directly called out. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And, agree. and mm -hmm. I think that there's a tendency to sort of dismiss that or to, you know, to kind of weave that into this whole gestalt of, um, of oh, it's the curse of this episode. This is the way that horror films are. You know, there was a, there's a little bit of that going on about, um, about belief systems and about what we're willing to believe about horror films. We want to have these sort of elements of terror surrounding these horror films, that it isn't just the demon in the film, but the demon outside of the film, that somehow the film raises this demon or something like that. I mean, one of the ones that they, they don't cover in this series, but that has a lot of stuff attached to it is, is Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it has all kinds of Satanism and things like that surrounding it. And it actually became, uh, you know, where we have many issues with Roman Polanski. But one of the things that he did not do was that he did not cause his wife's death. But that actually as a result of uh, Rosemary's baby, there was all this talk about, you know, him being a Satanist and sacrificing Sharon Tate. And that's a that's a real degree of damage that's really that's real viciousness to take a film and to say this proves that you know linda blair was inhabited by a demon or that this proves that the devil exists or this proves that roman polanski murdered his wife things like that it it it's a very attractive concept because it means that there's something more at work than common human tragedy uh and human responsibility but i i agree with you that i'm, I'm glad that for the most part the series does seem to be and I, and I haven't seen all of it obviously but the series does seem to be actually saying that this is 
this is violence that is being done by humans to humans. This is not because mm-hmm. uh, there's some kind of a curse on a film or they're raising some sort of demonic presences, things like that. Yeah. Well, and it really hit home and I was able to finally really truly feel like got connected when I got to the fifth episode, which is about the Twilight Zone movie. Mm-hmm. Because I saw that it was on there and I was just like, why are they talking about the Twilight Zone movie? That wasn't, as far as I knew, there weren't like curses attached to it. It just had an asshole director who murdered three people. But <laughs> they that's exactly what they talk about. Mm-hmm. And that's what the entire focus on, is on. And I got really pissed at some of the people who were like, well, accidents happen on movie sets. I was like, yeah, but. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it didn't. It didn't, sh- it didn't, like, try to say that, he- I mean, it, it's very, un- it's very open-ended. They didn't totally cast blame on John Landis for what happened, but um, they also very much lay out, like, everything that had to happen for this tragedy to occur, and, and um, it's interesting the way that it played out, but I, I thought it was a weird thing to include until I was actually watching and I got to the end of it and I was like, okay, this makes sense because everything that they've been talking about up till now in the previous four episodes really is about kind of the the way that these stories take on a life of their own and how really the curses and the monsters involved in all these films have been people, not any sort of de- demonic presence that's mm-hmm. unleashed. And so, yeah, it was interesting. Um, it's a good, it's a good series. I liked it. I was happy to see April Wolf was involved. I love her. She's great. Uh, she wrote Black Christmas. So, um, yeah. Uh, I was thinking too, when you were talking about the PR, it reminded me of, have you seen the movie Crazy People? No. With Dudley Moore. (laughs) So... In a nutshell, he plays an advertising executive whose life falls apart and then he can't lie anymore and he makes up all these ads that are basically true and they lock him up in an, in, in an asylum for a while. And uh, <laughs> one of the ads, like the ads accidentally get published and they become wildly popular. And one of the ads is for this um, this horror movie called The Freak. <laughs> and the ads, the tagline says, this movie won't just scare you. It will fuck you up for life. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it's so great. And so then it like shows footage of all these people just like running to the movie theater just trying to see this movie. It's so great. Sorry. I just thought of that. And, yeah. It made me giggle. So anyway. So what are what's one of your cinematic goals for this week? Uh, one of my cinematic goals for this week is to watch some of the Tribeca Film Festival screeners that are finally coming out. Tribeca is doing uh, kind of an online screening thing for its festival this year because obviously we cannot go to Tribeca. Uh, but I get to watch some of those films and I'm looking forward to it. They always have interesting documentaries. There are u- There's usually some interesting international films especially. Uh, and I- I'm just intrigued as to what I get to see and hoping... Every year I see at least a couple of films that I just think are really fantastic movies. And I'm, I'm hoping that we'll get that this year, despite all of the craziness that has surrounded it. Yeah. Awesome. Um, this week I am finally going to watch the Yorgos Lanthimos uh, movies on Criterion. I've been... <laughs> I've been like, oh, I'm going to watch Kaneta. I'm finally going to do it. And then it's like, oh, there's Rita Hayworth and something. <laughs> <laughs> so I keep getting distracted. But this is the week. It's finally happening. So, yeah. <laughs> well, God bless you. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. We'll see what happens. I love his movies, so. All right. Well, uh, so that's what we're up to this week and next. Let us know what you're up to and and how things are going with you um, out there in the universe. We want to give a quick thank you to our patrons, Heather, Adriana, The Crooked Table Podcast, Michael, James, Katie, Cariata, Mason, Matthew, Monty, Nanina, Nicole, Robert, Sharon, Steve, Tao, and Will. Thank you all so much for helping us out. Um, we do have some exciting news. We are going to be having a giveaway that we'll be announcing next episode. So make sure to tune in for details on that. And in the meantime, if you want to reach out to us, you can do so on Twitter and Instagram at Citizen Dame Pod. 
Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash citizendame. You can email us directly, citizendamepod at gmail.com. And make sure to check out our website, citizendamepod.com, where Lauren will be keeping uh, us up to date on some of the great stuff that she's watching at Tribeca. Probably some of the not-so-great stuff, too. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, Thank you so much to everyone who has supported the show financially. Uh, We've gotten some awesome... Uh, contributions this week in addition to our our patrons um and if you want to support the show if you're able to help us keep things going it's patreon.com slash citizen dame gives you access to some bonus content which we promise there's more coming um and early access to episodes we have our zazzle store you can get a new t-shirt you know you're getting tired of your t-shirts so pick one up from citizen dame zazzle.com slash citizen dame and if you just want to kick us a couple of bucks, we super appreciate that. And it's co-fi.com slash citizendame. You can also reach out to us individually. Lauren, where are you posting pictures of your sourdough starter? <laughs> I am posting pictures <laughs> of our sourdough starter, Luke. That is his name. Uh, <laughs> on uh, Instagram at LHBusiness. And I'm also on Twitter as, as, as well at LHBusiness. <laughs> <laughs> and I am on Twitter and Instagram at Karen M. Peterson. So thank you so much for listening. Have a great week, everybody. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye. What happened? He was playing the game wrong. How's this for the city? Oh, yeah. You look like a beautiful piece of wallpaper. What type of man would endure such an insult from a pack of filthy werewolf scum? Oh, God! I was the most handsome man in our village. His village was very badly affected by leprosy and the plague. This one is a very special creature to me. When I first met Laszlo, I was walking on the moors with him, and this owl flew over and scratched my head, and I said, kill that please, Laszlo. This is too much to ask. What a big, bloody, cheeky jerk coming here, telling us to take over the whole of Staten Island just by ourselves. Well, look at this, having a lovely bloody nap up there. I hope he's resting while you want me to come sing you a lullaby. Silly boy. I don't want these virgins. They are going to taste too sad. And I myself did contract leprosy, but I was quite lucky because it couldn't be seen. It was only one part of my anatomy. Well, I can see it.